Chapter Ten of Gold by Stuart Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two: The Golden City. Chapter Ten: The Golden City. We stood in between the hills that guarded the Bay of San Francisco at about ten o'clock of an early spring day. A fresh cold wind pursued us, and the sky above us was bluer than I had ever seen it before even on the isthmus. To our right some great rocks were covered with seals and sea lions, and back of them were hills of yellow sand. A beautiful great mountain rose green to our left, and the water beneath us swirled and eddied in numerous whirlpools made by the tide. Everybody was on deck and close to the rail. We strained our eyes ahead and saw two islands, and beyond a shore of green hills. None of us knew where San Francisco was located, nor could we find out. The ship's company were much too busy to pay attention to our questions. The great opening out of the bay beyond the Long Narrows was, therefore, a surprise to us, and it seemed as vast as an inland sea. We hauled to the wind, turning sharp to the south, glided past the bold point of rocks. Then we saw the city concealed in a bend of the cove it was mainly of canvas hundreds perhaps thousands of tents and canvas houses scattered about the sides of hills the flat was covered with them too and they extended for some distance along the shore of the cove a great dust borne by the wind that had brought us in swept across the city like a cloud of smoke hundreds and hundreds of vessels lay at anchor in the harbor a vast fleet. We were immediately surrounded by small boats and our decks filled with men. We had our first sight of the genuine miners. They proved to be as various as the points of the compass. Big men, little men, clean men, dirty men, shaggy men, shaven men. But all instinct with an eager life and energy. I have never seen equaled. Most wore the regulation dress, a red shirt, pantaloons tucked into the tops of boots, broad belts with sometimes silver buckles, silk Chinese sashes of vivid raw colors, a revolver, a bowie knife, a floppy old hat. Occasionally one, more dignified than the rest, sported a shiny top hat, but always with a red shirt. These were merchants and men permanently established in the town. They addressed us eagerly, asking a thousand questions concerning the news of the outside world. We could hardly answer them in our desire to question in return. Were the gold stories really true? Were the diggings very far away? Were the diggings holding out? What were the chances for newcomers? And so on without end. And the burden always of gold, gold, gold. We were answered with the enthusiasm of an old-timer welcoming a newcomer to any country. Gold, plenty of it, they told us, in breathless snatches, the most marvelous tales. One sailor had dug $17,000 in a week. Another man, a farmer from New England, was taking out $5,000 to $6,000 daily. They mentioned names and places. They pointed to the harbor full of shipping. Four hundred ships, said they, and hardly a dozen men aboard the lot, all gone to the mines. And one man, snatching a long, narrow buckskin bag from his pocket, 
shook out of its mouth to the palm of his hand a tiny cascade of glittering yellow particles the dust we shoved and pushed crowding around him to see this marvelous sight he laughed in a sort of excited triumph and tossed the stuff into the air the breeze caught it and scattered it wide a number of the little glittering particles clung to my rough coat where they flashed like spangles plenty more where that came from cried the man and turned away with a reckless laugh filled with the wine of this new excitement we finally succeeded in getting ashore in one of the ship's boats we landed on a flat beach of deep black sand it was strewn from one end to the other by the most extraordinary wreckage there were levers cogwheels cranks fans twisted bar and angle iron in all stages of rust and disintegration some of these machines were half buried in the sand others were tidily laid up on stones as though just landed they were of copper iron zinc brass tin wood we recognized the genus at a glance they were one and all patent labor-saving gold washing machines of which we had seen so many samples aboard ship at this sight vanished the last remains of the envy i had ever felt for the owners of similar contraptions we looked about for some sort of conveyance into which to dump our belongings apparently none existed therefore we piled most of our effects neatly above high tide shouldered our bundles and started off up the single street on either side this thoroughfare stood hundreds of open sheds and buildings in the course of construction goods of all sorts and in great quantity lay beneath them wholly or partially exposed to the dust and weather many unopened bales had been left in the open air one low brick building of a single story seemed to be the only substantial structure in sight we saw quantities of calicoes silks rich furniture stacks of the pieces of knock-down houses tiers of tobacco piles of all sorts of fancy clothing the most unexpected and incongruous items of luxury seemed to have been dumped down here from the corners of the earth by the four hundred ships swinging idly at anchor in the bay this street was i think the worst i'd ever seen anywhere it was a morass of mud sticky greasy mud of some consistency but full of water-holes and rivulets it looked ten feet deep and i should certainly have ventured out onto it with misgivings and yet incongruously enough the surface ridges of it had dried and were lifting into the air in the form of dust this was of course my first experience with that common california phenomenon and i was greatly astonished an attempt had been made to supply footing for pedestrians bags of sand had been thrown down some rocks a very few boxes and boards then our feet struck something soft and yielding and we found we were walking over hundred pound sacks of flour marked as from chile there must have been many hundred of them a man going in the opposite direction sidled past us cheaper than lumber he said briefly seeing our astonishment i'd hate to ask the price of lumber remarked one of our ship's companions with whom and a number of others we were penetrating the town this man carried only a very neat black morocco satchel 
and a net bag containing a half a dozen pineapples, the last of a number he had brought from the isthmus. The contrast of that Morocco bag with the rest of him was quite as amusing as any we saw about us, though, of course, he did not appreciate that. We walked on flour for a hundred feet or so, and then came to cook stoves. I mean it. A battalion of heavy iron cook stoves had been laid side by side to form a causeway. Their weight combined with the traffic over them had gradually pressed them down into the mud until their tops were nearly level with the surface. Naturally, the first merry and drunken joker had shied the lids into space. The pedestrian had now either to step in or out of fireboxes or try his skill on narrow ledges. Next, we came to a double row of boxes of tobacco, then to some baled goods, and so off on the solid ground. We passed many people, all very intent on getting along safely. From the security of the shed stores, the proprietors and an assorted lot of loafers watched proceedings with interest. The task of crossing the street from one side to the other, especially, was one not lightly to be undertaken. A man had the balance to leap to poise and at last, probably, to teeter back and forth, trying to keep his balance like a small boy on a fence rail, until with an oath of disgust he stepped off into the slime. When we had gained the dry ground near the head of the street, we threw down our burden for a rest. I'll give you ten dollars for those pineapples, offered a passerby, stopping short. Her companion quickly closed the bargain. What do you think of that, he demanded of us wide-eyed, and in the hearing of the purchaser. The latter grinned a little and hailed a man across the street. Charlie, he yelled, come over here. The individual addressed offered some demur, but finally picked his way across to us. How do you like these, demanded the pineapple purchaser, showing his fruit. Jerusalem, cried Charlie admiringly. Where did you get them? Want to sell them? I want some myself, but I'll sell you three of them. How much? Fifteen dollars. Give them to me. The first purchaser grinned openly at our companion. The latter followed into the nearest store to get a share of the dust weighed out. His face wore a very thoughtful expression. We came shortly to the plaza, since called Portsmouth Square. At that time it was a windswept, grass-grown, scrubby enough plot of ground. On all sides were permanent buildings. The most important of these were a low, picturesque house of the sun-dried bricks known as adobes, in which, as it proved, the customs were levied. A frame, two-storied structure, known as the Parker House, and a similar building labeled City Hotel. The spaces between these larger edifices was occupied by a dozen or so smaller shacks. Next door to the Parker House stood a huge flapping tent. The words El Dorado were painted on its side. The square itself was crowded with people moving to and fro. The solid majority of the crowd consisted of red or blue-shirted miners, but a great many nations and frames of mind seemed to be represented. Chinese merchants with red coral buttons atop their stiff little skullcaps wandered slowly their hands tucked into capacious sleeves of the richest brocade. We had seen a few of this race, and we looked at them with the greatest interest, 
examining closely their broad, bland faces, the delicate lilacs and purples and blues of their rich costumes, the swaying silk braided cues down their back. Other Chinese of the lower castes, clad in blue canvas with broad, bold-shaped hats of straw on their heads, wormed their way through the crowd, balancing baskets at the ends of poles. Rivaling the great Chinese merchants in their leisure, strolled the representatives of the native race, the Spanish Californians. They were darkly handsome men, dressed gloriously in short velvet jackets, snowy ruffles, plush trousers flaring at the bottom and slit up the side of the leg, soft leather boots and huge spurs ornamented with silver. They sauntered to and fro, smoking brown paper cigarettos. Besides these two, the Chinese and the Californians, but one other class seemed to be moving with any deliberation. These were men seen generally alone, or at most in pairs. They were quiet, waxy pale, dressed always neatly in soft black hat, white shirt, long black coat, and varnished boots. In the face of a general gabble, they seemed to remain indifferently silent, self-contained and aloof. To occasional salutations, they responded briefly and with gravity. Professional gamblers, said Talbot. All the rest of the crowd rushed here and there at great speed. We saw the wild incongruities of demeanor and costume, beside which the silk hat, red-shirted combination was nothing. They struck us open-mouthed and gasping, but seemed to attract not the slightest attention from anybody else. We encountered a number of men, dressed alike, in suits of the finest broadcloth, the coats of which were lined with red silk and the vests of embroidered white. These men walked with a sort of arrogant importance. We later found out that they were members of the dreaded organization known as the Hounds, whose ostensible purpose was to perform volunteer police duty, but whose real effort was toward the increase of their own power. These people all surged back and forth good-naturedly, and shouted at each other, and disappeared with great importance up the side streets, or darted out with equal busyness from all points of the compass. Every few minutes a cry of warning would go up one side of the square or another. The crowd would scatter to the right and left, and down through the opening would thunder a horseman distributing clouds of dust and showers of earth. "'Why doesn't somebody kill a few of those crazy fools?' muttered Talbot impatiently, after a particularly close shave. "'Why, you see, they're mostly drunk,' stated a bystander, with an air of explaining all. We tacked across to the doors of the Parker house. There, after some search was made, we found the proprietor. He, too, seemed very busy, but spared time to trudge ahead of us up two rickety flights of raw wooden stairs to a loft where he indicated four canvas bunks on which lay as many coarse blue blankets. Perhaps a hundred similar bunks occupied every available inch in the little loft. "'How long are you going to stay?' he asked us. "'Don't know. A few days.' "'Well, six dollars apiece, please.' "'For how long?' "'For tonight.' "'Hold on,' expostulated Talbot. "'We can't stand that, especially for these accommodations.' At that price, 
You ought to have something better. Haven't you anything in the second story? The proprietor's busy air fell from him, and he sat down on the edge of one of the canvas bunks. I thought you boys were from the mine, said he. Your friend here fooled me. He pointed his thumb at Yank. He looks like an old-timer. But now I look at you, I see your greenhorns. Just get here today. Have a smoke. He produced a handful of cigars, of which he lit one. We just arrived, said Talbot, somewhat amused at this change. How about that second story? I want to tell you boys a few things, said the proprietor. I get $60,000 a year rent for that second story just as he stands. The tent next door belongs to my brother-in-law. It's just 15 by 25 feet, and he rents it for 40000 Gamblers, inquired Talbot. You guessed it. So you see, I ain't got any beds to speak of down there. In fact, here's the whole layout. But we can't stand six dollars a night for these things, expostulated Johnny. Let's try over at the other place. Try ahead, boys, said the proprietor, quite good-naturedly. You'll find her the same over there and everywhere else. He arose. Best leave your plunder here until you find out. Come down and have a drink. We found the city hotel offered exactly the same conditions as did the Parker house, except that the proprietor was curt and had no time for us at all. From that point, still dissatisfied, we extended our investigations beyond the plaza. We found ourselves ankle-deep in sand hills on which grew coarse grass and a sort of sage. Crazy ramshackle huts, made of all sorts of material, were perched in all sorts of places. Hundreds of tents had been pitched, beneath which, and in front of which, an extremely simple housekeeping was going on. Hunt as we might, we could find no place that looked as though it would take lodgers. Most of even the better-looking houses were simply tiny skeletons covered with paper, cloth, or paint. By painstaking persistence, we kept at it until we had inquired of every building of any pretensions. Then, somewhat discouraged, we picked our way back to the shore after our heavier goods. The proprietor of the Parker House greeted us with unabated good nature. I know how you boys feel, said he. There's lots in your fix. You'd better stick here tonight and then get organized to camp out if you're going to be here long. I suppose, though, you're going to the mines? Well, it'll take you several days to make your plans and get ready. When you get back from the mines, you won't have to think about these things. There's plenty of gold, ventured Johnny. Bushels. I should think you'd be up there. I don't want any better gold mine than the old Parker house, said he comfortably. We paid him twenty-four dollars. By now, it was late in the afternoon. The wind had dropped, but over the hills to seaward rolled a soft, beautiful bank of fog. The sun was blotted out behind it, and a chill fell. The crowds about the plaza thinned. We economized our best at supper, but had to pay some eight dollars for the four of us. The bill was a la carte and contained such items as grizzly steak, antelope, elk, and wild duck and goose. Grizzly steak, I remember, cost a dollar and a quarter. By the time we had finished, it had grown dark. The lamps were alight, 
and the crowds were beginning to gather. All the buildings and the big tent next door were a blaze of illumination. The sound of music and singing came from every side. A holiday spirit was in the air. Johnny and I were crazy to be up and doing, but Talbot sternly repressed us, and Yank agreed with his decision by an unusually emphatic nod. It is all a lot of fun, I'll admit, said he, but this is business, and we've got to face it. Sit down here on the edge of this veranda, and let's talk things over. How much money have you got, Yank? Two hundred and twenty dollars, replied Yank promptly. Your partner's with me, Frank, so I know our assets, said Talbot, with tact. Johnny? Hanged if I know, replied the youth. I got quite a lot. I keep it in my pack. Well, go and find out, advised Talbot. Johnny was gone for some time. We smoked and listened to the rather blatantly mingled strains of music and watched the figures of men hurrying by in the spangled darkness. Johnny returned, very much excited. I've been robbed, he cried. Robbed? Is all your money gone? No, there's a little left, but... Talbot laughed quietly. Sit down, Johnny, and cool off, he advised. If anybody had robbed you, they'd have taken the whole kit and caboodle. Did you come out ahead on those Monte games? Johnny blushed and laughed a little. I see what you're at, but you're away off there. I just played for small stakes. And lost a lot of them. I sort of looked out your game. But that's all right. How much did the robbers leave you? Twelve dollars besides what I have in my clothes. Twenty-one dollars in all, said Johnny. Well, that's pretty good. You beat Frank and me to death. There's our total assets, said Talbot, and laid a ten-dollar gold piece and a dime on his knee. We'll call that dime a curiosity, said he, for I notice a quarter is the smallest coin they use out here. Now you see that we've got to talk business. Frank and I haven't got enough to live on for one more day. There's enough among us, began Yank. You mean you already have your share of the partnership finances, corrected Talbot quickly. If we're going to be partners, and that's desired and understood, I suppose, we all nodded emphatic agreement. We must all put in the same amount. I move that said amount be $220 apiece. Yank, you can loaf tomorrow. You've got your share all made up. You can put in the day finding out all about getting to the mines and how much it costs and what we will need. All right, I'll do it, said Yank. As for the rest of us, cried Talbot, we've got to rustle up $220 each before tomorrow evening. How? I asked blankly. How should I know? Out there, he waved his hand abroad at the flickering lights. There is the Golden City, challenging every man as he enters her gates. She offers opportunity and fortune. All a man has to do is go and take them, accept the challenge. The only way I could take them would be to lift them off some other fellow at the point of a gun, said Johnny gloomily. End of chapter 10